Lesson 10 of the Elements of Anatomy and Physiology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Murphy. The Elements of Anatomy and Physiology by William Ruschenberger. Lesson 10. Motion. The organs of motion are divided into two classes. First, those which act and produce the motive force. Second, those to which the action is communicated, or, in other words, they are divided into the active and passive organs of locomotion. The first are the muscles, the second are the bones or those parts which hold their place. Of the osseous system. Man and all the other mammalia, as well as birds, reptiles, and fishes, have in their structure solid parts which are called bones, and the union of these bones, one with the other, constitutes the skeleton. The skeleton is a kind of frame which gives firmness to the body in a considerable degree, determines its dimensions and its form, serves to protect the organs which are most important to life, and furnishes the passive instruments of motion to the function of locomotion. Of the composition of bones. The bones are formed of a species of cartilage, composed of gelatin, the substance which constitutes strong glue, all the laminae and all the fibers of which are encrusted with a strong matter composed of lime united to particular acids, phosphoric acid, etc. When bone is burned, the stony matter remains alone and is reduced to powder by slight friction, and when bone is steeped in a particular liquid, which has the property of dissolving the stony matter, hydrochloric acid, it is reduced to the state of a flexible cartilage. In infancy, bone is at first cartilaginous, and before ossification is complete, each one is formed of several distinct pieces which run together, as it were, at a later period. The bones that constitute the skeleton are united one to the other by articulations or joints, which change their name according to their form. If the articulation that unites two bones permits them to move one on the other, it is called a movable articulation. If, on the contrary, the articulation is merely to secure the solidity and firmness of the bones, it is called immovable. The more movable an articulation, the less solid it is, and vice versa the more solid, the less mobility it possesses. The immovable articulations take place through the medium of asperities which dovetail together. This mode of union is called a suture. The articular surface of the movable bones is covered with an elastic substance which is capable of bearing the strongest pressure and which deadens the shocks they receive. This substance is called cartilage. The articulations are also supplied with a viscous fluid called synovia, designed to favor the sliding of the articular surfaces upon each other. The extremities of the bones that concur to form an articulation correspond by having their respective configurations reciprocal. They are, in general, one convex, the other concave. The means of union between bones is by fibrous parts which bear the name of ligaments. These are very strong bands or species of cords which surround the articulation or joint, holding together the two bones by their extremities. The articulations present a great variety in the motions of which they are susceptible. The bones are also very different in their forms, and on account of this circumstance, they are divided into long, short, and flat bones. The long bones are generally cylindrical, of considerable size, and in the interior hollowed into a canal filled with a fatty matter called marrow. This form, without injuring their solidity, diminishes their weight. At their extremities, these bones are enlarged to afford a broader surface for the articulation. It is easy to perceive that, if the bones were in contact by small surfaces, their union would have been less solid 
they would have afforded only an uncertain and insecure motion and their derangement would have been as common as it is now rare about their middle the long bones are formed almost entirely of very compact substance but at their swollen extremities they are chiefly composed of a spongy substance which is not so heavy it is these bones that form the solid framework of the limbs neither the short nor the flat bones have any cavity in the interior the short bones are formed almost entirely of spongy substance which lessens their weight without diminishing their volume the chief use of the flat bones is to form the parietes of cavities which afford protection to internal organs they are not however insusceptible of motion they furnish points of attachment to many muscles we remark inequalities upon the surfaces of bones which afford points of attachment for muscles they often present for the same purpose as well as for the ligaments of the joints salient prolongations which are named apophyses or processes of the skeleton the skeleton is a species of frame formed by the union of the different bones of the body a great many animals are without it but it exists in the mammalia birds reptiles and fishes to study it we will select the skeleton of man the skeleton like the body is divided into head trunk and extremities the head is placed at the superior extremity of the body and is divided into two parts the cranium and face the face presents five great cavities destined to lodge the organs of sight of smell and of taste these cavities are the two orbits for the eyes the two nasal fossae and the mouth a great number of bones concur to form the face the principal ones are first the two superior maxillary bones which constitute nearly the whole of the upper jaw and rise at the sides of the nose to join the frontal bone second the malar or cheek bones which form the cheeks in part and extend from the superior maxillary to the frontal bone so as to complete the orbit on the outside third the inferior maxillary bone which constitutes the lower jaw presents nearly the form of a horseshoe there are also other bones in the face called palate nasal unguiform or lacrimal spongy bones and vomer the cranium is a bony cavity of an oval form serving to contain the brain it is formed by the union of several flat bones which are in front the frontal upon the sides and above the parietal behind the occipital below and on the sides the temporal and in the middle the sphenoid and inferiorly and in front the ethmoid which also serves to complete the orbits and form the superior part of the nasal fossae on the sides of the cranium we remark an opening for the auditory canal and on its inferior face or base we find many holes which serve to give passage to nerves and blood vessels one of these holes very much larger than the others called the occipital hole foramen occipitale corresponds with the vertebral canal and gives passage to the spinal marrow and on each side of this great hole we find an eminence called condyle which serves for the articulation of the head upon the vertebral column the trunk is composed of the vertebral column the ribs and sternum the vertebral column or spine is a species of bony stalk or stem which occupies the middle line of the back and extends from the head to the posterior extremity of the body it is formed by the union of small short bones called vertebrae and presents throughout its whole length a canal formed by the union of the holes by which each vertebra is pierced this canal serves to lodge the spinal marrow each of these bones presents in front of the hole a species of thick solid disc called the body of the vertebra which is very firmly united to the body of the vertebra next to it 
Behind, we remark prolongations called transverse and spinous processes, which form what is commonly called the spine. The vertebral column is divided into five categories, namely, first, the cervical region, which constitutes the frame of the neck. In man and all the other mammalia, it is composed of seven vertebrae. Second, the dorsal or thoracic region, which gives attachment to the ribs which form the chest or thorax. The vertebrae of this region in man are twelve in number. Third, the lumbar region, which terminates the back below, in man is composed of five vertebrae. Fourth, the sacral region, which articulates with the bones of the hips, is composed in man of five vertebrae, so run or fused together as to form but a single bone called the sacrum. Fifth, the caudal or costigian region, which in man is composed of four very small vertebrae concealed beneath the skin, in many animals is very long, constituting the tail. The vertebral column seen in profile presents four curves which correspond to the neck, the back, the loins, and the pelvis or basin, and which serve to augment its solidity. On its sides we find, between all the vertebrae, a hole which gives passage to a nerve coming from the spinal marrow. The ribs, which are attached to the dorsal vertebrae, are long, flat bones which enclose the thorax on each side. They are curved and bear considerable resemblance to a half hoop. In man, there are twelve pairs. The seven first, called true ribs, articulate in front with the sternum through the medium of a cartilage. The five last pairs, called false ribs, terminate anteriorly by a cartilage which joins that of the preceding rib, or they are entirely without cartilage. The sternum is a flat bone placed in front of the thorax. It articulates with the ribs and with the clavicles. The superior or anterior extremities are composed of the shoulder, the arm, the forearm, and the hand. The shoulder is the basis of the whole limb attached to it. It consists of two bones, the scapula or shoulder blade and the clavicle or collarbone. The scapula is a large bone nearly triangular in shape which is applied against the ribs at the superior and lateral part of the back. At its superior external angle, it presents an enlarged articular surface, slightly hollowed, which receives the bone of the arm and is called the glenoid cavity of the scapula. On the posterior face of this bone, there is a projecting comb or ridge which extends over the articulation of the shoulder and articulates with the clavicle. This prolongation is named the acromion. The clavicle is a long, thin bone situated at the base of the neck. It extends like a buttress between the scapula and sternum and serves to keep the first of these bones in its natural position and to prevent the shoulder from falling too far forward. The arm is formed of a single bone called the humerus. This bone is of a cylindrical form and has a swelling at its superior extremity called the head of the humerus, which articulates with the glenoid cavity of the scapula. Its inferior extremity is enlarged transversely and resembles a pulley upon which moves the forearm. The forearm is formed by the union of two bones which are, on the inner side, the cubitus or ulna, and on the outside, the side on which the thumb is placed, the radius. These bones are joined to the humerus by their superior extremities and to the hand by their inferior extremities. The hand in man is divided into three regions, the carpus, the metacarpus, and fingers. The carpus, or wrist, is composed of eight small bones, ranged in two rows and united to each other by fibrous threads which preserve their mutual relations and permit them to move a little upon each other by aid of the smooth surfaces by which they are in contact. The metacarpus is composed of five bones which may be regarded as the origin of the fingers. 
they are placed parallel one alongside of the other their superior extremities articulate with the bones of the carpus and their inferior extremities with the fingers the fingers are composed of small bones articulated one at the extremity of the other and called phalanges except the thumb which has but two each finger has three of these bones the inferior extremities are formed nearly in the same manner as the superior the hip represents the shoulder the thigh the arm the leg the forearm and the foot the hand the hip or haunch serves to support the abdominal member or lower extremity as the shoulder sustains the thoracic member it is formed on each side by a very large and very strong bone the ilium these bones are united together in front and behind they articulate with the sacrum so as to form in conjunction with it at the bottom of the belly a sort of bony belt called the pelvis or basin in infancy we find that the ilium bone consists of three separate portions one of which resembles the scapula somewhat and is called the ilium the second placed in front called the pubis may perhaps compare with the clavicle and the third situated below and behind has received the name of ischium and which supports the whole weight of the body when seated with age these three bones become solidified into one at the point where they unite we find a very deep circular cavity called the cotyloid or more commonly the acetabulum in which is articulated the thigh bone the pelvis serves not only to support the lower extremities but also assists in sustaining the weight of the viscera contained in the abdomen and in forming the parietes of this cavity the thigh is formed of a single bone called the femur this bone is articulated by its superior extremity with the hip bone and by its inferior extremity with the leg the leg is formed of two bones very solidly united to each other the bone placed internally very much larger than the other and called tibia articulates with the femur by its superior extremity the bone which is placed externally does not quite reach to the femur and is only united to the tibia it is named fibula in front of the articulation of the leg with the thigh is placed a small bone named rotula or patella which is designed to strengthen the knee joint the foot is divided into three regions the tarsus the metatarsus and toes it differs from the hand chiefly in the shortness of the fingers that is toes their limited mobility and by the disposition of the tarsus the tarsus is constituted of the union of seven bones one of which alone called the astragalus articulates with the two bones of the leg another one of these bones called the calcis forms a considerable projection which constitutes the heel the metatarsus is composed of five bones which are united to the tarsus and to the bones of the toes and which are arranged like the bones of the metacarpus like the fingers the toes are composed of phalanges called first second and third phalanges the great toe has but two phalanges each of the others has three all these little bones are joined to each other by articular surfaces the contact and junction of which are secured by fibrous ligaments of the muscles all the great motions of the body are caused by the displacement or movement of some of the bones which form the skeleton but these bones cannot move of themselves and only change their position through the action of other organs attached to them which by contracting draw the bones after them these motor organs are the muscles they are very numerous and constitute what is commonly called flesh and form nearly one half of the total mass of the body they are a species of ribbon or fleshy cords composed of fasciculi or bundles of fibres united together and which have the property of contraction or elongation all the muscles destined to produce the great movements of the body are fixed to the skeleton by their two extremities 
It therefore follows that when they contract, they displace those bones which offer the least resistance and draw them towards those which are not movable but serve as points of support for moving the first. Now, in most instances, the bones are more movable in proportion as they are more distant from the center of the body, and the muscles which are fixed between two bones generally act upon that which is most distant, and we always find the muscles destined to move a bone extend from it towards the trunk. For example, the muscles which move the fingers occupy the palm of the hand and the forearm, those which flex the forearm upon the arm occupy the arm, and those which move the arm on the shoulder are placed upon the shoulder. Under ordinary circumstances, however, the muscles displace the bones which serve them as points of support. When the body is suspended by the hands and we endeavor to raise it, the flexor muscles of the forearm, not being able to displace the latter, approximate the arm and thus draw the whole body after it. When a muscle contracts, it swells. Its fibers, which in a state of repose were straight, fold in zigzag, and their two extremities are brought near to each other, drawing also with them the parts to which they are attached, but their volume is not augmented. The two extremities of muscle are solidly fixed to the bones and to the other parts which they are designed to set in motion, such as skin, through the medium of white cords called tendons, or membranes of the same nature called aponeuroses or fascia. In contracting, they must necessarily draw towards each other the two bones to which the tendons or aponeuroses are attached. An example will enable us better to understand this mechanism. If we suppose the muscle to be attached to the humerus and to the ulna or cubitus, which articulates with the first, forming the elbow joint by movable ligaments, it is evident that when this muscle contracts, these bones will approach each other. This example will give an idea of all the motions of the skeleton. The number of muscles of the human body is very considerable. They are reckoned at 470. In general, they form about the skeleton two layers and are distinguished into superficial and deep-seated. The muscles which are designed to move any particular bone are almost always placed around that portion of the skeleton which is situated between the bone to be moved and the center of the body. For example, the muscles which move the head are situated on the neck. Those which move the arm are on the shoulder, those which flex and extend the forearm surround the humerus, and those which flex and extend the fingers are placed upon the forearm. The same is true of the muscles of the lower extremities. The muscles are divided into flexors, extensors, rotators, elevators, etc., according to the uses which they subserve. The contraction of the muscles is determined by the action of the nervous system, and each muscle receives a nerve which is ramified in its substance. This contraction is sometimes affected through the influence of the will, and sometimes independently of it. The muscles whose action is dependent upon the will belong to the functions of relation, and those whose motions are involuntary, the heart, for example, belong to the functions of vegetative life. The strength or power of a muscle depends partly upon its volume and partly on the manner of its attachment to the bone which it moves. All things being in other respects equal, the strongest muscles are the largest, and from exercise both their volume and strength are at the same time increased. In the bodies of animals, the muscles and the bones are generally placed unfavorably for the power of motion, but very favorably for rapidity, as may be easily demonstrated by the elementary principles of mechanism. The muscles not only serve to enable us to execute different motions, but they are also equally necessary to maintain the movable bones in the positions proper to them, and their action determines the attitudes. For example, the head by its own weight has a tendency to fall forward, but the contraction of the muscles on the back of the neck keep it erect. Of the attitudes. 
the term attitude is applied to any position of the body that is permanent during any considerable time in order to explain the mechanism of the attitudes it will be necessary to enter into some of the details which properly belong to the study of physics all bodies when left to themselves tend towards each other from the influence of a general force called attraction and the force with which one body attracts another is great in proportion as its mass is larger comparatively than that of the attracted body now the mass of the earth being incomparably larger than that of the animals plants stones and all other objects spread upon its surface attracts them unceasingly and tends to cause them to fall towards the centre of the globe in order that a body shall rest in the position it occupies it must be sustained by something capable of resisting this force of attraction and which does not give way under its weight such as the solid surface of the earth itself or an inflexible body placed between it and this surface we name base of support the space occupied by the points by which an object supports itself upon a resistant body or the space comprised between these points in order that a solid body shall rest motionless or immovable upon its base of support and not fall it is not necessary that all its points should be thus sustained it is enough to sustain it by a single point provided this point be placed in such a manner that if a part of the mass fall towards the earth another part opposite to it and of equal weight be elevated as much the weight of one part counterbalancing the other center of gravity is the name given to the point about which all points of a body reciprocally balance each other and if it be sustained it is sufficient to maintain the entire mass in place it follows then that to prevent a body from falling it is sufficient that its base be placed vertically beneath its center of gravity it is also easy to understand that its equilibrium will be more stable in proportion to the extent of its base for then its center of gravity may be more displaced without the vertical line which passes through the center of gravity being carried beyond the limits of this base of support the more the center of gravity is elevated above the base of support the less firm on the contrary will be the equilibrium for a smaller displacement from this point will then suffice to carry the vertical line that descends from it beyond the base of support which soon causes the body to fall the term attitude is applied to any position of the body that is permanent during any considerable time the principal attitudes of man are lying sitting and the erect position on his feet or standing when a man is lying on his back or on his belly all parts of the body rest upon the earth he is not then required to contract any muscle to keep them in place and his position unites in the highest degree the two conditions of equilibrium to wit the greatest possible extent of the base of support and the proximity of the centre of gravity to this base hence the attitude of repose is that from which it is most difficult to fall in the sitting position the body rests upon the tuberosities of the ischium or haunch bones the base of support is considerable since it is represented by the pelvis the extent of which is increased by the soft parts which cover it this position also next to lying offers the greatest solidity but it cannot be preserved without muscular action when the back is supported the muscles of the neck alone contract to preserve the head erect but if the back is not supported as when seated on a stool or a bench for example then the greater part of muscles on the back of the trunk contract to prevent it from falling forward and fatigue will sooner or later result from this permanent action when man is erect the lower extremities sustain the body and transmit to the earth the weight which they support consequently these limbs must not bend under the load and must be kept straight by the contraction of their extensor muscles 
In this position, the center of gravity of the whole body lies in the cavity of the pelvis, and the base of support is circumscribed by the space comprised between the two feet. Here a slight force is sufficient to destroy the equilibrium, and it is only by enlarging the base of support in one direction more than in the other that a fall can be prevented. The movements by which we regain the perpendicular in the base of support are in a measure automatic. Thus, to resist a force tending to make us fall forward, the foot is rapidly advanced. If the body leans to the left, we suddenly extend the right arm to re-establish the equilibrium. If a force tends to throw us backward, we put a foot behind and throw the body in advance. The man who has a large belly and the man bearing a heavy load upon his shoulders are both obliged to assume attitudes that change the position of the center of gravity. The first carries the body backwards in order that the vertical line passing through this point may also fall between the two feet, and for the same reason, the second bends the body forward. A woman who carries an infant upon her right arm inclines the body to the left side. Thus, we are constantly resorting to mechanics even without possessing the most elementary notions of the science, and the most certain causes of our preservation are found in the continual application of physical laws of which our reason has not the knowledge. When an animal rests upon its four members at the same time, his standing is more firm, more solid, and less fatiguing, for the base of support is then very large. Then, without inconvenience, the feet may be much smaller than in the bipeds and consequently lighter. Of locomotion. The objects of the motions which we perform is either to change the position of certain parts of the body or to transport us from one place to another. The faculty of changing place is called locomotion. The movements of progression by the help of which man and animals change place are produced by certain parts of the body which being flexed rest upon a resisting object and being again immediately extended push forward the rest of the body. In man, the organs of locomotion are the abdominal members, or lower extremities, in quadrupeds, the thoracic, as well as the abdominal members, and in birds that fly, the wings. In walking, the body of man is moved alternately by one of the feet and sustained by the other, without his ever ceasing completely to rest on the ground. This last circumstance distinguishes walking from leaping and running, movements in which the body quits the earth for a moment and launches into the air. In walking, one of the feet is carried forward while the other is extended on the leg, and as this last member is supported on the ground, its elongation displaces the pelvis and throws the whole body forward. When the foot which was advanced alights upon the ground, the pelvis turns on the femur of that side, and the leg which was at rest behind is flexed and carried front of the other, touches the earth, and in its turn serves to sustain the body, while the other limb, by being extended, gives a new impulse to the pelvis. By the aid of these alternate movements of flexion and extension, each limb in turn bears the weight of the body as it would do when standing on one foot, and at each step the center of gravity of the whole mass of the body is pushed forward. Security in walking is always in a direct ratio to the degree of separation of the feet and in an inverse ratio to the mobility of the surface that supports us. It is only at the end of a certain time that sailors walk securely upon the deck. When they have once got their sea legs, it is very easy to recognize them on the shore from the habit which they have of considerably separating the feet in walking. Leaping, or jumping, is a movement by which a man projects himself into the air and again falls to the ground as soon as the effect of the impulsion is lost. The mechanism of the leap consists entirely in the previous flexion of the joints and their sudden extension. When a jumper wishes to spring, he shortens himself by folding himself up as it were upon himself, the leg is flexed forward on the foot, the thigh is also flexed back on the knee, and the trunk with the pelvis 
are flexed forward on the thigh and when one wishes to spring with all his strength the trunk is flexed upon itself like a spring all these preliminaries of the leap the lower extremities and the body describe a series of zigzags at the moment of the leap all the articulations are extended at the same instant and raise the body with such rapidity that it leaps into the air like an elastic rod that had been bent to the ground and then suddenly abandoned to its elasticity or spring it is easy to perceive that the parts which act most in the leap are the legs indeed it is upon them that the weight to be raised is most considerable the facility and rapidity of the leap are always in direct ratio to the energy of the muscles which determine the extension of the legs it is observed that the most vigorous dancers and even great walkers have the calf strongly developed indeed this part is formed of the muscles which affect the extension of the leg upon the foot running partakes both of walking and leaping there is always a moment in running when the body is suspended in the air a circumstance which distinguishes it from rapid walking in which the foot that rests behind does not leave the ground until the forward one again touches it swimming and flying are movements analogous to those of leaping but which take place in water or in the air fluids whose resistance to a certain extent take the place of that of the ground in the act of leaping when an animal is destined to live in water and to swim its members have a different form from that of those animals which are organized for walking only the limbs are then short and constitute a species of paddles or oars called fins when the animal is designed to elevate himself in the atmosphere the thoracic members on the contrary are very much expanded and are so arranged on each side of the body as to form a kind of movable sail or fan fit to strike the air with force in one of the following lessons when we consider the mammalia and birds we shall recur to the study of these organs and we shall see how the same members may constitute in different animals the instruments of prehension of walking of natation or of flight we here conclude what we propose to say generally on the manner in which the principal phenomena of animal life are performed and on the organs which serve as instruments for the exercise of the faculties with which animals are endowed we shall next proceed to study each of these animals in particular and see in what way they differ from each other. End of lesson 10. Recording by Ellen Murphy.